Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello and welcome to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. My name is Brett Winton. I am the Chief Futurist at ARK Invest. And here with me today, I have Oren Hoffman, who has a long history of entrepreneurship uh, and is the founder and CEO of SafeCraft uh, and hosts the um, World of DAS Data as a Service podcast. And prior to that, uh, has done a lot of entrepreneurship things, uh, including LiveRamp and uh, Angel Investing. Welcome, Oren. How are you? We're really happy to be here. So can you expand upon my very sketchy biography of you? How did, how did you get into kind of tech? And it seems like you have a lot of data-based businesses in your background. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm a software engineer and kind of a data scientist by background. So that's kind of how I kind of got into it. Data is a very, very seductive place to be. And right now you are... Um, kind of helming SafeGraph. Can you describe what that business does? And and then more generally, like what is a data as a service company and, and why is it interesting in the world today? So SafeGraph sells very, very boring data about physical places. So think of like cafes near me, uh, Italian restaurants, the operating hours, the shape of the restaurant, the, how many square feet or square meters the restaurant has, like very, very basic information, telephone number, that type of thing. And with data, we just sell data, so it's just facts. We don't do anything else, no analytics, no software, no UI, no services. Literally, we're just selling a collection of facts. And the most important thing in data, uh, sometimes people forget this, but the most important thing in data is that it's true because you're just selling facts. And so hopefully you have a lot of facts and hopefully those facts are facts people want. And then most importantly, they're going to be relying on those facts to make decisions. So you, you want those facts to be true. If you think about it from your world, from ARC, you probably have a historic stock ticker information on a particular stock. So let's say AT&T, you could go back well over 100 years of AT&T, and you could see the ticks maybe over 100 years ago. The tick was by day. Now it might be over by a tenth of a second. I'm sure at some point there's some fat finger bad information in there that's wrong, but in general, it's probably like well over 99% accurate, and that's really important if you're building models on that. So you want to rely on that data being true, and usually the data is about something that happened in the past, and again, maybe in stock ticker, it's like the past might be a tenth of a second ago, uh, but you're, you've got some sort of data of something that happened in the past, and you want to make sure that that past is reliable. Is a just the facts approach to data an ideological issue for you? As in, this is something that you're fixed and firm on as a business? Haven't you been, I don't know, tempted to add analytics to the back end of the data sources that you're providing? Yeah, you could have many, many different types of businesses. So if you think of FICO, FICO is predicting the future. So it's taking some data, which is the history of you pre of paying back 
loans, maybe small loans, maybe large loans, and predicting whether you'll pay back a loan in the future. Uh, and they have a great business doing that. And so you can you can build analytics on top of the data. Right now for SafeGraph, we don't. We just focus on things in the past. But you can imagine a slight kind of change on that in the future as well. Isn't, I mean, even you presenting it as like just the facts, even facts are subjective to some degree, right? Yeah, I mean, well, like there are there are certain things that are relatively true. Um, so if I think of a fact about you, like your height is probably relatively true. Your weight might change over time, but at least your current weight is relatively true. And maybe your weight a year ago was marketably different from your weight today, but at least hopefully we had like a scale and that scale maybe had to be calibrated and maybe you did it in kilograms instead of pounds or something. Um, so we need to maybe do some sort of translation on that or something, but it's just, it, there, there are ways of, of making sure these are relatively correct things. It seems, or one of the things we've focused on is, is the kind of software tools you can use to successfully interpolate between data and maybe extrapolate from data are growing massively more powerful in the form of neural nets. Um, it, it seems like, there's an explosion of capability of what can happen on top of data for you. Like, how do you see that as an opportunity as a data provider? And does that force you more further towards like, hey, let's throw analytics on top of our own data or further towards like, hey, we're going to produce just the factual layer and sell it to everybody? Maybe it is ideological for us, but but our belief is that as you get more and more of these tools, the underlying data becomes more and more important. And uh, if there's some deviation from the truth in the underlying data, then that could really skew the models quite a bit. And so you really want to make sure that the data, and they'll, you'll, I mean, we cover billions and billions of facts. Our data will never be 100% true. Like that's impossible. Even if we were true a week ago, things change. Um, and so, you know, then we're not necessarily going to be true today, but we, we aim to be 100% true. And every time we get something wrong, which is all the time, uh, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of things that are wrong all the time. We are mad about it and we do our best to, to correct it. Have the correction mechanisms changed for you? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, you can get feedback and you can get feedback in real time from customers. Uh, when you correct one fact, sometimes, you know, it's actually correcting some sort of model. And so you end up correcting thousands, thousands of facts, or sometimes even hundreds of thousands of facts. And sometimes you, you, these corrections can be very, very, very tiny, but in aggregate, they add up. So you could be, uh, you know, the, one of the things we do is like we put things on a map. And so you could be correcting um, a lot long coordinate, just a very, very slightly, uh, but that can make a really big difference over time. Is there something intrinsic to the data class that you're operating in that lends itself more to the, I'm just the facts data model, uh, business model versus other kind of like data classes where kind of throwing analytics on top are, are more important? If you think of kind of a two by two matrix on data companies, there's one matrix where you're really talking about, are you more of a data company or are you more of a software company? And so, and everyone will find themselves somewhere different on the continuum. And then the other thing, are you, are you predicting the past, which is what, really what SafeGraph is doing, or are you focusing on the future, which is uh, looking at, um, are, you, are you a little bit more like religion or something? And so those are, th that's another axis. And you can be incredibly successful company on anywhere in that spectrum. But it's very, very difficult if you're a small company to be in multiple places on that spectrum. So you have to pick, okay, this is our lane. This is where we're going to be. Once you get a few hundred million in revenue, sure, you can move into some of these other places out there. But it's very, very difficult to do that until then. 
I feel like I've encountered throughout my career multiple periods of people saying, claiming that data is, or data is the new oil was a phrase for a while. Maybe it's coming back now, but but the idea that kind of businesses are going to be able to take the data internal to them, the data exhaust call it, and then like package it and on sell it or kind of like sell it back to their customers or, or essentially directly monetize the data. But it seems like it, data direct monetization seems like it always remains like a small part of the overall spend. Is that accurate? Do you think that? I would agree with that. I think it's very, uh, it would be a very bad business for most companies to try to sell their data because that would be a very, very small percentage of their overall. You're essentially creating a whole new business for, you know, 1% revenue gain or something. So it, it just wouldn't make sense to go do that. It probably would make a lot more sense just to focus on your own business. It'd be probably a very, very difficult thing to do. And so, but but people are often giving their data away to get some sort of advantages. So if you think of most insurance companies give their data to Verisk, and Verisk is a data company, they process the data, and then they give back some sort of aggregate data to help you reduce fraud. Uh, most banks give their data away to an Experian, an Equifax, et cetera, and they're getting certain information back from that. So there's often ways where if there's if there's some sort of intermediary in the middle, uh, you can benefit from your data. Almost every single major company gives away their payroll data for free. Um, to some sort of provider, and then they give them back benchmarking on top of that. So there's lots of different ways. And, you know, we all give our data away for free to Google or to LinkedIn or all, you know, so we're all getting, and we're all getting benefit back from that. And that's generally, you're getting a lot more benefit if you're trading your data for, for something than if you're like outwardly trying to build a business to sell it. It's pretty rare that those are successful. And yet you're, you're running a business that's trying to sell Data. Well, that, that's all we do. Yeah, that's all we do. And, and by the way, it's it's a tough business. Selling data is not an easy thing. I wouldn't necessarily recommend like for uh, 20 people listening to this podcast to go compete with me. Uh, so it's really, really hard. Don't don't go into the data business. Stay where you're at. Um, it's, it actually is a tough business. And it's hard because when you're selling data, you're really just selling an ingredient. So we like to say we're selling high quality butter to pastry chefs. Uh, and so first you have to consider, you have to convince them that you actually need butter to make your croissant. Like you would think that's obvious, but people don't always realize, oh, I, I need butter. And then say, okay, actually you really need the high quality butter to make your croissant. And then in the end, just because you have high quality butter, I'm not a great chef. If I, someone gave me high quality butter, I'd still end up with a terrible pastry. Uh, so you still need the great chef in the end who actually can take that butter and take a whole bunch of other ingredients and, and make something really, really impactful from it. One of the ways I've heard neural nets described, which I think is a maybe a useful way to think about them, is you know it they they really are just big databases with good interpolation characteristics. As in, I could take your data, train a model on it, and then it would provide me with like the in between space. I don't know the the square footage of the building in between two that aren't captured within the data set. Do you think that like the direction of travel for you is to yes provide the facts, but also provide like any of the interpolation between the facts. Oh, and we do that. Yeah. So we, we, we try to predict the past and sometimes we don't have all the data. So we use, I mean, that's what you're really describing is, is, is exactly what machine learning is, where if you just think of like a database of rows and columns, right? So if you think of it like an Excel, big Excel spreadsheet of rows and columns, okay, we're well, going to have a lot of missing cells in there. 
and uh, and what machine learning does is it tries to fill in those cells with base using the other data that's around and we do the same thing we'll try to fill that in and then you're using different models to go do that so for instance we might try to predict the square footage as you mentioned or something and we might say generally a cafe is smaller than a grocery store right so you may have some sort of understanding of that and in Manhattan it may even be smaller than in um, suburbs or something and so you're doing a whole bunch of different things to try to make some of these uh, predictions but instead as you said instead of a human outlying each of these heuristics the machine learning model is learning. And, it, and then if you have some sort of real data, it's taking that real data into account to help you make these predictions. It would seem to me that that as you get better at that interpolation, that the data set itself becomes more valuable to an end user. Yeah, I mean, if you have a data set where like 70% uh, uh, of the cells are blank, that's less valuable than if you can fill them in. Now, if you fill them in and 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 that information is only 7% accurate, well, that's not helpful either. So, if, but if you can fill them in and that information is in the high 90s percent accurate, well, now maybe we can start using it and maybe that starts like, you know, it's really, really, it can be really, really helpful. So there's always these trade-offs that one has to, to, to figure out. And then even if you're doing machine learning, like you do need some sort of feedback loop to help you make it better. So if you build a model, these models can get out of control like really fast. Like one little tweak can get like things that like really haywire. So you need constant feedback coming in saying like, actually, no, here's the truth of this. And you deviated from the truth. And then you need to go back and retweak your models to try to uh, account for that. If you very crudely simplify your business, does it distill to like dollars per gigabyte or pennies per gigabyte or or? Is that like, is that the key, like very high level, like revenue indicator? No, no. Uh, I mean, I think you're, 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 first of all, you're, you're measuring how much data you have and you're trying to understand and then, and then, but just cause you have data doesn't mean it's valuable. So which is valuable, which is not to your customers. And then you're trying to understand how accurate it is. And the nice thing about there's certain type of data where it's very, very hard to ascertain the accuracy. If you have data about like the local cafe like you could actually just go there and check it out right so if we tell you the store hours if it opens at 8 a.m on a tuesday and you show up at 8 a.m it's not even open till 9 okay well it's wrong like the door is closed maybe the website still says 8 a.m but like i can tell you for sure i went there it's not open right and maybe it's not open because like the person didn't show up or something to open it so there could be a lot of different mediating factors and, and just because it's not open today at 8 a.m doesn't mean it won't open next week at 8 a.m so there are these things that are but there are things you can verify is there a tipping point in terms of utility of the data as in within the biological context or the, or the health systems context right like a general a pan cancer test where i take a blood test and tell you whether or not you have cancer at a level of specificity that's worth nothing like as in because nobody's going to pay for it because it'll be more likely to deliver you like the wrong information that you have cancer given the low rate of cancer in the population but then if you cross a certain threshold suddenly you create this market that previously didn't exist before or do you think that's a general like there are like tipping points within data accuracy where suddenly the data set becomes very valuable well there can be tipping points between data accuracy also the tipping points within in our case there's starting to be more and more tipping points within uh the users and so you you if you have users that can use the data that are more advanced about using data etc generally like the, the simple heuristic is until if, if if you're a hedge fund where like where you work 
okay, you don't have any of your own data, so you have to buy external data. But most companies have a lot of their own data. So if you think of a big retailer, like they have a lot of amazing data that they can use. And my, my basic feeling is until they use their own data well, they shouldn't be buying external data. So there's some sort of curve that every company goes on and there's a point where they start using their company their own their company data pretty well and they're not going to get that much more value about 10x saying how good they are at using their own data and that's when they should start bringing in external data but until they get to that point and still probably only a fraction of companies are at that point today it doesn't make sense to go buy external data but the further along they are on the curve and everyone is somewhere on that curve today and everyone's moving on that curve then, it, then you could see how the data markets can grow over time. Hmm. And what is like the, the SafeGraph customer today, like a prototypical? Our prototypical customer is a builder. So it's a, it's a product or engineering team that's actually building products where our data is an ingredient. And that product may have a map in it or may have some sort of, um, they're, they're building, and, they're, and that product could be external, like I am, I'm a software company building products to help retailers, or it could be internal, like I'm building this product and I have internal teams that are using this product for something, but something where it's actually productized. And one of the things like for a lot of funds is, you know, there are some like systematic funds where, where things are productized, but for most funds where they're actually doing like a lot of independent research, those aren't products per se. There's like a very, very smart analyst who's doing that. And, and generally that means like you're going to be selling it to something that's probably not a recurring revenue situation. So we, we don't sell into that situation. We would prefer to sell in something where our data gets into some sort of product and it's informing that product. And as long as they keep using that product and as long as our data is good, they're going to keep buying that data. By product, do you mean like a software product? What, what exactly? It's either a software product or there's some sort of internal, you know, again, it could be, a, it could be an analytics system. Um, so you could be running a, um, a, a you know, there, there are big retailers that every single week run a, uh, for every single uh, retail institution, try to figure out the store hours for that but it's an internal product that informs all those types of things or it could be a software system or it could be a local search it could be a lot of different things could be logistics so i'm moving i have lots of trucks that i'm moving around and i've got a whole system internally to help me do that Uh, but something where i kind of need to do this all the time it's not like a one-off situation where i want to that's for us not a great use case for our data got it and then does the is the business model such that you're charging per query or like how does that work out i think every data is different on how they charge so a lot of data is like a kind of a per query and something like that we basically do it based on if you think of like the rows and columns um, that you might want okay great you have an understanding of what you might want we might increase that over time but you don't have to pay more for the increase and then you just pay a flat fee for the year for for that type of data got it so and you described you think more kind of customers are coming into kind of like being able to use this stuff is that is your sense that's because the essentially the machine learning tools are getting more powerful or are there other factors today a smart engineer with like snowflake or databricks is a is as more capable than a great engineer was five years ago and a lot of companies can hire a smart engineer but only a very, very small select companies can hire a great engineer. So you're just really increasing the power of everybody 
and people can do a lot more with data today than you could do with five years ago. And of course, five years before that, even less, and five years before that, even less. Within the like broader context, not just SafeGraph, but generally, do you, is there, or, or maybe even on the data provision side, is there a reason to, to kind of believe that these tools lead to concentration of markets or fragmentation or, or is it mixed? Like, you know, internally there's, there's are on wall street, certainly there's always the debate. Well, it's like Google has all the data and they have, you know, a ton of money to spend on engineers. So won't they just absorb all the world's data and build the best machine learning and neural net models. And so then absorb everything. Well, Google does have amazing data. And uh, in their case, they you often win not because their algorithms are better or anything. Many times they've open sourced their algorithms. So they, they don't have better algorithms than other people. They may have better access to compute than other people, but they're, they're often winning because their data is better. And so I think it is a, I think it's certainly an issue. Like their data is amazing. And there could be a point in the future where their data is so good that, you know, doesn't leave room for anybody else. But at least so far, there's still lots of room for lots of folks to compete in lots of different levels. Is your sense the the customers who are using your data, are they, do you know, are they using it to plug into more modern um, kind of neural net type models? Or is it still more traditional ML type implementation? It could be anything. Um, and all these things are kind of like neural nets and like you just go through it like they all they're all there to like solve different problems and sometimes it could make sense one for the other and some things things are, it's all there's also a question of price so you know you could you can make a, a case that our neural nets better than a simple ml model but it also might be 100x the price um so is it worth the price or a year to train it or something yeah right. yeah is it worth, you know, so so there could be a lot of different types of things that that you have to there's a lot of different factors when you're factoring all these types of things in and sometimes you don't necessarily need like you're not necessarily running a prediction on it like you literally want to just take some data and show it to somebody um so there's some sort of like if you're looking for a house like it is helpful that they tell you like the number of bedrooms in the house you're a consumer you're not running a, a neural net on that thing i mean in your head you are obviously you're running a huge neural net like inside of your own head uh but you're you just want to like consume that data simply as well and you want to make sure that the it's true that if it says four bedrooms it's actually four and it's not one and a half yeah i i'm a little torn on specific to google like an idea that we have internally that I'd love to hear your reaction to is that kind of the way in which software evolves is it's going to become much more text prompt based where your ability to query the data set essentially becomes natural language intermediated and much more analog than, you know, if, if you're querying a database and you have to know the exact key to get you to the spot in the database, your odds of guessing it are very low if you don't have a good, you know, mapping the database. But if you can essentially enter a natural language query that that kind of gets interpreted into a key in the database, then, you know, you're, you get to like explore the entire shape of the data set. And so that function of, hey, I'm just like typing in to find something within a software product, say, is displacing of like Google search where you're searching the internet for the piece of information. If all the information on the internet has been mapped into kind of neural nets that are queryable by search, um, then kind of the whole kind of interface to software changes. You might be right. First of all, like, have you used Google search recently? Like, it's terrible. 
It hasn't changed at all in 20 years. It is so bad. It's like, I can't believe how bad it is. It's like impossible to find anything on Google. Like it, they, they own the market and like they've just literally just sat there and done nothing. I believe probably it's worse today than it was 20 years. It's actually gotten worse. It's like airplane travel or something like it's gotten worse over time. And, you know, they, they have this monopoly. And they haven't worked on it at all. So it, 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 these things, first of all, and it's not terrible because maybe they haven't tried. Like, it's a really hard problem. So they have super smart people. It's a great company. But like, like actually build, putting these things together and getting some sort of um, context and everything like that is really, really, really hard. Join keys are also really important. So as you're like putting this data together, you want to be able to ask questions across all these different types of data sets. And historically, like the more join keys you can have that can join these uh, things together, the better. Like in your case, like, you know, you're, you're using do the dollar as probably some sort of store value. So even if it had it in euros before, you're probably converting back and, and using. So, so the dollar can be a great uh, join key going back like a long time. Um, you use you probably use something called Unix time to to do um, to do time because obviously time is different all all around the world and so you want to and then Unix time is a really nice join key to be able to add and subtract time and to normalize time. and so there but there are thousands and thousands of join keys and we probably need like we probably need another thousand x the number of join keys to start putting all this data together and. Are you competitive with Google, do you think? Like SafeGraph specifically or, or not really? Everybody competes with Google somewhere, uh, including you. So yeah, everyone kind of, oh, look, Google's an amazing company and you know everyone kind of competes somewhere on the value chain with them. Like they're, they're, they're really the only company that does everything that's out there and they have the ambition to do everything. So even if you don't think you could be with them today, you, you could in the future, right? Um, th that's why they're such an amazing company and, and company that like we all admire so much. So you're not only the helming SafeGraph, you're also yourself an angel investor and have a long history of entrepreneurship. Could you talk more generally about what you're seeing in the marketplace, what you're investing in and, and what's interesting to you? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways of like evaluating a business. And I'm primarily interested like historically in B2B businesses, but I think this is probably true for B2C businesses. And I think like to me, the simple thing of a business is like, how do you know when it's getting better over time or how do you know if it's not getting better over time? And if it's really, if it actually is getting better over time, it's probably a good business to be in. And if it's not getting better over time, then maybe it's not a great business to be in. And the simple thing for me to look at um, is our CACs. So is your cost of acquisition increasing over time? Is it flat or is it decreasing? If it actually really starts decreasing and decreasing significantly over time, this is a good business to be in. And so, you know, if you think of like, if you think of B2C companies like Facebook or something, like their CACs are basically zero. Um, and like, that's great. That's like an amazing business. There are these SaaS companies that are out there that are, you know, really impressive businesses where their CACs just keep going up every single year. Um, to me, those are less good businesses. Uh, so I like businesses where the CACs go down over time. Yeah. The B2C businesses, yes, their customer acquisition costs were decreasing until like Apple threw sand into the eyes of everybody in consumer space and stopped them from well, being- Well, in those cases, I don't think they really were decreasing. So most of those companies, these like direct consumer businesses, there was, in fact, most of them that actually were increasing even even before Apple. And then, and then after Apple, they started increasing mightily. 
So because they started with like this great list of folks where they had this really good channel and then that channel only worked at a certain amount and they had to start paying a little bit more for the next one, a little bit more for the next one, a little bit more. And yeah, they had some economies of scale to justify it. But to me, that could be a good business, but it's unlikely to be a great business. Um, to me, great businesses are where, uh, you know, it's like um, my, my favorite business in the world is Visa. It's just a great business, right? It's like, it's an amazing company. Uh, it, it just runs by itself. It's, it's um, kind of a monopoly, duopoly business. Uh, those are the businesses that, that like ultimately you want to be an investor in. Yeah, kind of what you're alluding to. It's it's like customer acquisition cost is also a, even independent of the customer acquisition cost, it's probably a proxy for the quality of the customer once they're on board, I would think, right? As in, like, look at organic versus paid customer acquisition. Organic customers are going to come in and they're much more likely to not only buy the product, but continue to be a customer in a business. Whereas if you pay for the customer to get them in the door, it's also, you know, probably a signal that the customer is less. Well, yeah, that's true. But at a certain point, like if you're selling something very high price, you're going to have some customer, you're going to have salespeople to talk to them, right? And so you're going to have something like relative, like if you're selling like a $500,000 engine that sits on an airplane or something like that, you probably have a salesperson talking about it. And it's like, there's some sort of spec. So you're going to have some customer acquisition costs that exists. It's not going to, it just never, it's not like people are just going to put a credit card and go buy that engine necessarily. Maybe, maybe they will. I mean, when, when I bought my Tesla, I literally just went to the te website and put my bank information and lo and behold, like a Tesla was delivered six weeks later without even ever talking to somebody. So that's great. And um, I think more and more things will happen that way. But often for complicated stuff, you still need a salesperson in there and that salesperson has a, has a cost. Yeah. How are you approaching kind of that challenge, customer acquisition and within SafeGraph? Is there like a, a secret? Well, I, I haven't found the secret. I'm sure there is, uh, but no one shared it with me yet. And uh, it's hard. So selling selling data is particularly hard because you're, you're generally going to have a long sales cycle with data uh, because it's hard to understand it. You have to evaluate it. How do I know it's real? How do I know it's good? How do I know it's going to move my whatever my product is or my model is? So maybe I want to tr try out a little bit for a time. So, And then people are not always in the market for data. It's hard to know when they're in the market for data. So you talk to them today and they're they're interested, but then they go dark on you for six months and then they come back like, I'm ready to buy, you know? And so it's a, it's a, it's a very hard process to, to, to sell data. As I'm, as I'm telling all your listeners, don't get in the data business, um, stay in the analytics business. Why is the CEO of a data business uh, also running a podcast? <laughs> well, I love data. So, uh, so we, we started this podcast, World of DAS, uh, D-A-S for data as a service. And so I love talking about data. I love talking about data businesses. And, um, and so, and I, I like to geek in and geek out with uh, a lot of the other people that really care about data. And so um, like, I'm, I'm a huge fan of FICO. I think it's just like a great business. So we dived in with the CEO of FICO. I'm re I love Verisk. I think Verisk is one of my just the top, top business. And it's probably one of the most interesting businesses that most people have never heard of. Uh, so I want to dive, we dove in with the CEO Verisk, uh, ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is, is one of the most successful pure play data businesses that have been started in the last 20 years. And the CEO, Henry Shuck, is just a master. So really want to dive in. Okay, how did you do that? Like, what did you do? How did you actually build something so successful? So I find all these things real. And then there are other companies that are like 
kind of data businesses. If you think of like Planet Labs, they've got these images from space, essentially just data that they sell. Um, so, and, and then someone has to take that data and actually make it useful. So there's a lot of other folks that we try to dive in with. I mean, you could presumably call these people up and talk to them, like why recorded broadcast? It's fun. I mean, why do you do anything in life? Like at some point, like you're just doing it to have a good time. It's intellectually interesting and, and enjoyable. And uh, you don't necessarily have to have like, it, it's not like you've got like some perfect roadmap of, of everything. And uh, you're, yeah, you, you do things because they're fun and intellectually interesting. Yeah, that's kind of the way at least we operate as well. But I mean, bringing up FICO kind of brings up a set of ideas or questions I have for you. One of the interesting things that happens is data gets processed in a certain way and then established into infrastructure or product for, and, and then kind of the system becomes very resistant to actual changes in that processed data. Yes. Yeah, I mean, look, FICO is, is become a currency. And then a lot of people, uh, when you package loans, you packages it around a FICO. Uh, and so when you're selling the loan, so you, you, it's become embedded in everything we're doing with anything to do with uh, understanding the predictability of the future in the financial market. So that's one of the reasons I think it's just an amazing company is it's not just a predictive algorithm, but it's essentially a currency. And, and, and they have, you know, they, they have very, very high market share in their niche. Uh, much, much higher than almost any other, much higher than you would think a predictive score. Usually predictive scores um, have low market share. Be pretty rare for a predictive score to have even 20, 25% market share. Uh, and they have well over 50% market share because they've become a currency. Uh, and so if you can do that in a company, well, then that company becomes really, really interesting and really valuable. That to me seems like actually a really economically inefficient in that like whatever there's, there's a better, and I think FICO even tried to do this internally, like FICO plus, like, hey, we can, we can create better credit scoring than exists in the current models, but it's hard to kind of transition people off of the existing kind of older predictive algorithm um, because of the way it's embedded. Sure. But like there, there, there's always these trade-offs. I mean, we all use a QWERTY keyboard, like it's not, you know, the, there's a lot of trade-offs when it comes to standards, like the standards are never perfect. There's this great XKCD comic where like, like there's 16 standards. This is terrible. And then like, you know, there's a light bulb. I have, let's create a 17 standard. And then the next thing, there's 17 standards and it's terrible. Right. So yeah, it's, it's never, it's never ideal. Um, the, the whole idea of a standard is that it's not ideal. Otherwise, like it just doesn't become a standard, but standards are really powerful and our entire world would not run without standards. I mean, if you think of the English language, you have kids, Brett. Okay. Like, have you ever, you teach your kids to read? Like, it, English language does not make any sense. Like you read these things and you're like, what? Well, how did, how did I ever learn English? Like it's a terrible language. Like it doesn't make, but it's like great. It's, now it's not only the standard for America, it's the standard for the world. Like the whole world speaks English. We're all interacting in this like terrible language. Uh, it's so hard to use, uh, but it's become a standard. And it's so great that we have a standard. If like, yes, we could all be speaking in Esperanto. And yes, Esperanto is probably way better than English, but there's a huge cost to like move, you know, moving to something that's 10% better. Yeah. Don't you think that in the world that we're in, where kind of like the technological frontier is, is particularly with regards to transforming and, and predicting from data is moving more quickly, that kind of the like English language will stay, but say if there's a whole stacked set of standards that we're relying upon, things further out in the stack should be more and more eroded by adaptive systems that can basically operate without standards to make inferences and predictions. 
Well, you need currencies to trade things. Uh, I mean, you're in the business of trading stuff and you need ways of comparing things. And so we have like, for, so we have accounting standards and like, they're terrible. Uh, so you need other ways of kind of like, but, but they're important. Um, and, uh, like this, the gap, the gap doesn't make any sense. And does it make, it probably makes less sense in today's world than it did in the world of like, you know, 1975, but we, it, it's changed. Um, and every year they decide to change it slightly, but it does change slowly and it changes slowly for a reason. Cause if it changed super fast, uh, then it just becomes like really, really hard for societies to deal with it. You could think of it as a, as a feature, not a bug. Um, that you have these substandard standards. Maybe, maybe. Well, you could, I think that there's clear like utility in having like a fixed way by which things are measured and performance standards that things hit. Yeah. I mean, if, if I measure something in dollars and you're measuring it in the value of camel hairs, like, I don't know, it's just like, it's just like hard to have a common language. So we, we try to have this language to, to be able to compare things to, together. I mean, as somebody that believes in the, call it the Bitcoin future, I think that the number of kind of like survivable currencies on a forward basis is going to diminish. Like as in there's, you know, you can imagine that there is like a, a very simple set of standards that could be the basis for a lot of economic activity. And you'd want to actually reduce the number of standards that you have and, and have everything operating on top of it be much more analog and, and plastic. Well, yeah, but if you think of like standards are often like the other way of saying standards is just a join key. And so a way of joining, like if you use Unix time, like it's not a great, like there's a lot of things that are weird about it. Okay. So like 1964 is negative time. Like, why does that make any sense? Like there's just a lot of weird things and standards that don't make any sense. Um, and they're just join keys that allows us to join data easily to one another. And we use them for like, and sometimes like somebody from high up can just decide this is the standard. Napoleon made them decided the meter is the standard. This is the standard we're all going to use. And yes, if you're the emperor of Europe, you can declare that this is a standard. And hopefully you can make sure that that's right and everything like that. But most of us are not the emperor of like the Western world. And so you need to have, uh, uh, you, you know, these standards kind of like evolve organically. And then, uh, and then it's like, okay, to have competing standards and one, like, yes, if FICO did nothing, um, they're not going to be around and these things are still important for them to improve on. If they don't improve at all, it's not going to be around in 10 years. Hopefully they're making the, if, if you're an investor in them, hopefully they're making the right um, improvements. So they still are a valuable company 10 years from now. Yeah. I think it's just that like, I agree. And there, imagine that there's, there's, there's always like a, some economic balance between there's the switching cost of like moving off of a standard that is functional on like, you know, how many people have built infrastructure on top of it. And then there is the, um, the, the cost of continuing the standard, which is the economic inefficiency that it, that it, it introduces because it's like not a perfect match for, you know, it's like I type slower than I possibly could if I was not on a QWERTY keyboard and multiply that times every knowledge worker. And gosh, I mean, it's probably a big economic cost, right? Um, and uh, and and it seems as if like the our ability to lower the switching cost is improving. Like the the technological tools should allow things to kind of map to new join keys more easily than they could before. I mean, maybe maybe you're right, but like I like I'll give you an example in the B two B world. So like say, uh, Salesforce is the standard for most companies. Salesforce is 
terrible. It is literally the worst piece of software. It is so slow. You cannot make changes on it. It's really hard to use. The UI is really bad. It was actually never good and it's still terrible, yet still the standard. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's and still something that we use. Like LinkedIn is so slow. It is so painfully slow. You, it's, it's like, it's sometimes it's unusable. They're like all these things don't work. The search doesn't work. We still use it. So there's these standards that exist everywhere and these standards happen because like and a lot of other people use them and that's why it, it you know that's why it becomes a standard and this is almost almost all these valuable businesses that that you invest in are are pretty sub good uh like they're just not that great and they haven't really been improving at the rate that they should be but they've created some sort of entrenchment monopoly position and then they uh they use that and yeah we can all complain about it i complain about salesforce every day every time i have to log into it i complain i curse it all the time yet i still use it and i still pay for it and that's how you know it's a good business when you have a sub good product that everyone still pays for i mean so there's a it's a startup out there i think adept.ai is and the idea is it's text prompt based basically automation of function in kind of web browser based um, software. One of the examples they give is kind of like, you know, you tell it to, hey, take this contact and put it into my Salesforce and then send them an email saying thank you for the whatever. And it does all this stuff on the back end. If you imagine that that capability, like it extends, it becomes much more powerful. And suddenly that becomes the front end to my workflow is I can, I can basically natural language informant to do that stuff. It doesn't seem like it's that far away from then me saying, hey, transfer my entire Salesforce functionality from Salesforce into this other better product and and kind of like the extraction process and and the ability to move from one standard to the better standard is much less frictionful. That is becoming true. So one of the things that people sell today, when people are selling today uh, software, one of the things that they sell is that it's easy to move off of their software. Um, it's not always true, but that is almost always in the deck. It says, hey, you can implement us. And if you don't like it, it's so easy to move us to this other system. And that's important because uh, so many companies have gotten burned by having this lock-in that they're, and so they want systems that are easy to move, whether it's like there's other, they're, they're, and often because they're writing to particular standards or um, they've got a certain type of, you know, simple kind of format where they've got some sort of simple JSON format you can move or whatever it is that they're doing, or there's some sort of translation layer. And of course we use, like a lot of people might use like a Zapier or other types of things to translate data and move it around. Uh, but I think it's true because customers are more sophisticated than they once were. And they want to be able to move data. And also just the number of vendors has grown. So if you just think of the number of vendors that the average company uses today, number of tech vendors has gone up more than 10x in 10 years. And so just the just the raw, they're, they're spending, their tech spending may have gone up 4x, but the number of vendors has gone up more than 10x. Uh, so they're just, you're buying, it's, it's so much easier to sell into these companies. They're more adept at buying software. They're more adept at buying these tools. And I think that's great. And now you need ways of like flowing data between all these tools and you need these middleware systems and you need lots of other things to be able to get that data uh, value, you know, get that data really a value. I mean, 10x the vendors, 4x the spend. And yet, like Microsoft seems to be absorbing everything. Uh, like, where do you think is the right like um, model for where value accrues in kind of like as we extrapolate into the future? It's basically like you have the Borg Galactic Empire and then uh, that 
like takes all of the cash flow out of the business and all of these like niche software as a service companies are they manage to cross or convert a customer over, but then they get displaced by the next guy? Or is there another way to think about it? Well, obviously, it's very, there, there is competition. And, um, and if you are winning on, if you're winning on the fact that you have a better mousetrap, and that's the core thing that you're winning on today, you could also easily lose on that when someone has a better mousetrap than you. And so, and there's all these super smart people, especially as of last last year, where the venture dollars were higher, who are constantly entering in this market and want to displace you. So if you they want to take your, if you've got 50 million ARR that you just got, well, that's maybe the easiest to take because you just got it. If you have 50 million in ARR and you've had that same 50 million for the last 20 years, it's probably more difficult to take unless people are really um, unsatisfied with that particular uh, type of thing. So yeah, we live in a competitive world, and I think that's good like the products on in general have gotten much better a, a generally like software salesforce is i complain about it salesforce is, is is over 20 years old and so um and it kind of looks that way and seems that way when you when you use it uh if you use a product like figma or something like it's beautiful slack is a beautiful product um and uh, and so there's a lot of these companies out th- out there where they're making their products better and that's one of the the advantages for using it when i if like if when we pick up like bank softwares like we all we all have a bank we all have a credit card we all have a checking account and stuff like that most traditional banks out there their ui experience is so bad it's like if you want to do a wire if you want to do if you even if you want to check your balance it's like so hard to do and then every once in a while you like log into like something that square did and it just blows your mind how good it is i wish every single interaction was like a square type interaction and yet it's like we still have the sales forces at the back end we still have swift and we still have ach on the back end too right we have these systems that have been around for over 50 years well, I would argue on the banking side, banks have been shoved down. It, like, is a customer sticky to Chase or is a customer sticky to to the Cash App or Venmo? There seems to be some displacement of kind of like that customer sticky. Well, there should be um, because these are these are companies who kind of have these entrenched monopolies. They've somewhat taken advantage of their users over time and their customers. So you want to have, uh, and, and when you think of a square, like they really care about the customer. Like they're really thinking, how do I make the customer's experience better? Not like, how do I nickel and dine them to charge them an extra 10 cents on something? They're like, I'm going to create long-term value by making this customer love me. That's great. That's amazing. And it also comes down, I mean, back to the customer acquisition cost issue. Like banks, you know, we've done research on like bank customer acquisition costs is absurd. It's like $800,000 for a retail banking customer. And that's embedded in the, when they build a branch, they're basically trying to buy a a basket of customers for, you know, $1,000 a piece. Whereas if you're digitally distributed and you're, and you're growing by peer-to-peer transfer, like cash app customer acquisition is like five or 10 bucks per. So they, they can afford not only to like provide good user experience, but to treat their customers humanely from a fees perspective, no matter how large the the customer's balance, because it's underwritable within their customer acquisition, you know, budget. So that's probably true of a lot of different software companies. Uh, And if you have some sort of good distribution model, as you mentioned, well, you're right, then you can focus on a lot of other types of things. But even even if you don't like, I see no reason why you shouldn't like try to, I mean, LinkedIn, like their, 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 their cost of acquisition is, is, is basically zero. 
it's an amazing thing. Like they probably could invest to make it a little bit better, uh, but they choose not, not to. I think that's a function of organizational focus. Like, you know, you talk about how great Google is and Alphabet as a company has amazing data assets, amazing engineers. And I think it's really hard for them to motivate talent outside of like the cash cow that is core search. As in, you know, they, they, all of their other bets seem to be certainly relative to where they could be. They're not being aggressively commercialized or deployed. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and in search, it's, it's commercially deployed, it's, but it's commercially deployed so much that there's so many more ads now than there used to be. And the product is, is just less good. So they, they basically decided to milk that product to be able to do a lot of other really cool stuff. But to me, the search product is so important for all of us. Like we all use it so often. Many of us use it, um, you know, uh, dozens of times every single day that it would be, it would be great for humanity if that product got a little better. Yeah. And it does seem like there's are within the software and now the difference between kind of the software and the banks or the Salesforce and, and the banks is that Salesforce has, you know, an amazing data repository that they're probably not sufficiently exploiting right now, but they have probably the mechanisms by which they can do so. That's probably true for banks too, though there there may be regulatory things of what they can do, but my guess is most of these banks are underutilizing the data the data assets that they have. Yeah, maybe I should say that Salesforce probably has like the internal culture such that they have a chance of actually successfully exploiting it. Well, the the Salesforce does have some issues. So they, um, you know, the way you really get value from the data is creating some sort of data co-op. But the Salesforce contract, if you actually read the contract that they have with their clients, it basically says they don't have the right to really do anything with the customer data including like creating stats or a whole bunch of other types of things where like a data co-op would be helpful. And to change that, they would have to like change all the contracts. And then they would like, you can imagine like, how do you incent the salespeople to change the contracts? Okay, well, they're they're going for like a higher ARR. And you say, hey, you know, you have to like spiff them in the right. It, it just becomes a very big like organizational nightmare to, to change that like midway through in a company's history. That's interesting. So even it's it's kind of like if you're not even, if you're not designing the business process or the customer onboarding process in a way that you know is actually reactive to the data environment that you're going to be in, then you can have like infrastructure debt essentially against uh, kind of business optimized practices on a floor. Yeah, just because you have code debt, but a lot of companies have these contract debts. Uh, now, if your if your contracts are all just like signing a click to confirm thing, um, using you know like like a lot of Stripe contracts or just like click to confirm things right on their what well, they can change that for everybody they can send a notice to everybody hey in even if they give people six months notice in six months here's the change that we're doing and people might be upset about it but they that is probably in there it says we have the right to update this anytime we want as long as we give you notice right so uh i'd be just much more bullish that stripe could be uh more uh more agile than 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 some other types of companies yeah Okay, so we will uh, have to all listen to World of DAS. The Thank you. Podcast. I appreciate it. I, I definitely endorse it. It's it's uh, really interesting material. And it does seem as if data is the new oil again. Uh, I, I think that I think now it's really the new oil, at least given all the tooling that's being deployed that can, can build on top of it and generate unique insights from it. So I appreciate you coming on to discuss it with us. It really had a fun conversation. Brad, this was really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me here. All right. Thanks. 
take care, everybody. And this is FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. Please subscribe, like on the podcast platform of your choice, and, uh, and we'll see you next time. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.